0: I sat down and calculated how many weddings I've been to in the past four years, and uh, I approximate about 25 weddings, which is quite a lot. Um, But it seems to be the season when everybody, all of my friends, just decided they're going to get married. And actually, of those 25 weddings, this has been me uh, at least five of them, (laughs) because for some reason, people think um, they're going to ask me to preach at their wedding. And I've got a little theory about this, and I think it's probably because I'm not quite funny enough to be the best man. Uh, I'm not quite good looking enough to be an usher. Uh, I, you definitely wouldn't want me to sing at your wedding. And then people are just like, well, what can we have Josh to do at my wedding? He needs to do something, because otherwise he'll be offended. So usually they say, uh, we preach from the Bible at my wedding, and I usually oblige. So there's me preaching at my sister's wedding this summer. And so when Christian asked me, Josh, do you want to come and speak on 1 John 4 on Sunday? I thought, brilliant. Do you know what? I've got at least five sermons on 1 John 4. And so I thought, you know what? It's amazing to be here. You all look so beautiful. Congratulations. Blah, 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 blah. I'll skip all that bit. And then I'll just do the God is love. You know, let's, let's live this out. I really hope your marriage goes really well. And then sit down. And actually, looking around, uh, there's some people definitely in this room that have heard at least of my, at least three of my five 1 John 4 sermons. So actually, uh, maybe I don't even need to preach on 1 John 4 at all. Maybe I could just sit down and just read the passage again, and you probably remember all of the amazing things that I said the first time around, right? But actually, as I was reading over 1 John 4 to prepare for this week, which I actually did prepare for it, don't worry. But as I was reading over 1 John 4 again, it struck me that actually nobody has ever asked me to preach on the entirety of 1 John 4 at their wedding. And I wonder why that is. I mean, it's a very romantic occasion, getting married, and maybe you don't want to talk about evil spirits and the (laughs) Antichrist at the front of your wedding. Um, And maybe it's not that appropriate to talk about how to distinguish between heresies and false prophecies as you're about to tie the knot. And then it got me thinking even more. Why does John talk about so much about loving one another straight after talking about how we distinguish between false prophecies and heresies? Because it doesn't look like it's a natural flow. Actually, I think, if you're anything like me, you read the word evil spirits, false prophecies in the Bible, and you go, oh, we're not going to talk about that. That, that's, we'll just leave that bit aside. We'll skip to the second half. God is love. Let's talk about all this stuff. That's much more easy to understand. And actually, we can probably explain most of the evil spirit stuff scientifically these days. So probably we can just bracket that bit off and not talk about anything else. But actually I think the whole of this passage of scripture is incredibly relevant to our culture and to who we are as a church. And I think... If I had to sum up the whole of 1 John 4, my summary wouldn't be God is love. My my summary would be this, why the truth really matters. Why the truth really matters. That's what I think we need to understand to get to the heart of what John is talking about here. And actually what John tells us in these first six verses that we often don't preach about at weddings is something which is very important. And our society values truth very highly. I don't know if you've noticed that, but actually every week we see some kind of scandal in the press, don't we? We see some kind of truth that's been revealed. And I think probably in our culture, truth is valued more highly than privacy and dignity, for example. And when we discover a piece of truth, when we discover something new, which reveals something about the world, it radically changes how we think about ourselves. It changes how we speak and it changes how we act. So let me give you some examples. I don't know if you remember in 2013, but uh, we found out the truth that actually a large number of our ready meals contain traces of horse meat. I don't know if you remember that. (laughs) But actually the, the truth was that the food industry wasn't as transparent and trustworthy as we thought it was. There was another truth that we would have been eating bits of old mangy horse and not delicious cow. <laughs> I got one laugh from the vicar. <laughs> but but what did that, how did that truth change how we lived? How did it change how we thought? Well actually I think it probably changed quite a lot. Suddenly we, we had a trust for the food industry which shifted from an immediate suspicion about what we were told. We didn't take things for granted. We started to speak differently. We started to care about what was on the back of our packaging a little bit more. We walked around the supermarket and said, oh, I don't know what that is, maybe I shouldn't buy it. So it changed how we spoke. And actually, I think probably it changed how we lived. And maybe people made their own delicious cow lasagnas instead of buying the horse lasagnas from Tesco's. So let me give you another example, if the horse example maybe didn't reach you quite to that sort of level. So, um, if we could get the video ready. Here's another example, I think, of where truth really shifts something in how we think. Okay, so, I don't know if you remember first watching that video. But actually, I think the truth literally hits you when you watch that. The first time I ever watched it, I was just completely shocked by it. I mean, a lot of people suspected what the truth might be in that situation. But when you hear it from the mouth of somebody telling the truth, it's completely different. And that one interview between Oprah and Lance Armstrong, that one question and that one word answer changed a sporting hero, an inspirational leader, into a bully and a cheat. Into someone completely lacking integrity. But actually, I think more than that, that one word, that one piece of truth, changed entirely how we looked at the world of sport, how we thought about sportsmen and sportswomen. The default position of admiration and trust, for better for worse, has been replaced by suspicion and hesitancy. I like to call this the Oprah moment. This is the moment when the truth (coughs) shifts something. The truth changes how we think, it changes how we speak, it changes how we live. So the point is, from these two examples, I hope it's clear, which is this. The truth changes how we look, about, look at the world. It changes how we speak, changes how we act. And I think this is, to some extent, what John is trying to get across in these six little verses. So let's start in verse 1. He says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John tells us, don't believe everything you hear. Don't be taken in by everything that seems shiny and exciting. Don't believe your lasagna is 100% beef. Don't believe that every winner of the Tour de France is a morally perfect person. And importantly here, don't believe everybody who claims to be from God. Don't believe everybody that tells you they have an answer to the meaning of life. Not everything that we come across spiritually is from God. That's what John is trying to get us to realise here. Not everything we see which persuades us, which moves us, which convinces us, is from God. It's not just a question of dark spirituality, of the things we don't like to talk about. Actually, in this passage, John seems to be reacting against a kind of philosophy which was very common in the time he was writing, and that's called Gnosticism. And don't be scared by the big word, I will explain it right now. But basically, the idea behind Gnosticism is... Um, We say, here's the physical world, and here's the spiritual world. And these worlds don't interact. And actually, importantly, the the physical world is bad and sinful, and the spiritual world is good and from God, and we need to pursue it. So praying and worshipping and connecting with the Holy Spirit, they're really good things. And um, sex and eating and drinking and just doing the things that we do, Physically, they're, they're from the devil and we need to be purified of them and God will take us away from them eventually and we'll live in a big disembodied worship service for the rest of our lives. So there's a kind of um, philosophy behind that which makes this sharp distinction between the physical and the spiritual. And in particular, it seems that people were going around proclaiming something about Jesus to this extent, which was that Jesus wasn't The son of God. Jesus wasn't God in flesh. Because how could he be? Because the physical world is dirty. It's sinful. How could God inhabit that worldview? So actually there are people going around preaching. Things which seem persuasive. Things that line up to truth. Things that seem to sit right with people. And it looks like they're doing a pretty good job of getting people alongside. But they are proclaiming one thing. Which is that Jesus is not God. So here's the Oprah moment. Here's when the truth shifts that worldview. We read in verse 2 this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus, that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not. From God. So, against the worldview in which the physical and the spiritual were um, set apart from each other, John tells us that actually the truth is much more controversial than a horse lasagna or a sporting hero that has fallen. John tells us that in this worldview, some is, is completely opposed to what Christianity teaches, which is this that not only are the physical and the spiritual part of God's good creation but actually that God himself entered into our physical world. John tells us the way of distinguishing between truth and false is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And actually, if we look at the way that that John articulates this, he doesn't only tell us that Jesus was God in flesh, he tells us that jesus is god in flesh he doesn't say christ came in flesh he says christ has come in flesh the truth which stands so apart from the heresy of the time is that actually god is somehow part of this physical world god has been um, we believe in a doctrine that's called the incarnation that jesus is god in flesh not only are the physical and the spiritual linked They are linked by God himself. God is part of the physical realm. So actually, this truth changes the worldview. It changes this untruth. And it says anything that doesn't proclaim that Jesus is come in the flesh is not from God. A friend of mine recently told me that um, after the, he, he was married at 23, so I was married at 22, so I can kind of um, understand where he's coming from. But he told me that um, he gets a lot of... I don't know if you've ever got this. If you if you married in your early 20s, you'll get people that go, you're not married, are you? How can you be married? You're only, you're only 22. You're too young to be married. As if that's the kind of right to tell me that um, I shouldn't have got married at 22. In fact, I was in River Island the other day buying a tie for a wedding... And uh, the guy very enthusiastically, trying to sell me a tie, um, said, well, are you going with someone? I was like, yeah, I'm going with my wife. And he went, excuse me, this is what they say, they always go, excuse me, do you mind if uh, uh, I just ask you, how old are you? And then when you tell them, "Uh, I'm actually 25, and I've been married for three years, uh, their response is usually, good on you, mate. (laughs) Um, Or something to that extent. But actually, so my friend, I was talking to my friend the other day, and he told me that um, he had a similar moment, and he turned around to the person that said, you're mm-hmm. a bit young to be married, aren't you, mate? And he said, um, you should see some of the other things I believe. And actually, I think we're a little bit like that as Christians sometimes, aren't we? We wrap things up in a nice little packaging, and we say, what we believe is really normal, just come and join us, and believe all these normal things that we believe as well. And we just want to pretend to be like you and believe all the same things of you. But actually, we believe some really weird things. That's true. Like, I believe that God, who created the entire universe, who is sovereign of the entire universe, who's the most powerful being that could be conceived of, became a human being. And you can wrap that up as many ways as you like, but it's weird, right? It's going to sound strange to people. And actually, John acknowledges this. He tells us that that's the case. In verse 6, he says, We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So not only does the truth change how we think and how we speak, it changes how other people treat us as well. It changes how other people perceive us. So, how does this simple truth, Christ is in flesh, Change our worldview and change how we act and how we live. What's our Oprah moment? Well, it might be that we're coming across lots of false spirituality, um, dark spirituality, heresies, um, and I think we should be aware of those things. I think as Christians we shouldn't be naive to think that actually everything spiritual is from God. So I think it's important that we take that message from John, that not everything spiritual is from God, with the simple test that we have here, that everything that is from God proclaims Jesus is in flesh. It's important that we take that on. But as G2, we've been thinking over the last few weeks from the start of term, how are we sent to people? How are we sent from this room as a church to be equipped to do the things that we do in life? And... and I might be wrong, but I'm guessing most of us don't come across many heresies and dark spirits in our every day. Um, and we, we may do, and I think we need to be aware of that as well. But actually, I think it goes deeper than that, right? This is not just about rebuking evil spirituality. But actually, when we understand this truth, it really does change how we live. And this is where I think I should have started my wedding sit, my wedding talk, Right? This is Josh's simple guide to how to avoid a Gnostic marriage. <laughs> Believe it or not, I don't think that this second half of 1 John chapter 4 is just stuck on because John thought, I've got this beautiful poem about love and I think it'll just, it's got to go somewhere, so I'm just going to put it here. <laughs> I, I think that it was more carefully crafted and I think it was more inspired by the Holy Spirit than that. And actually, I think if you read it carefully, this second half of 1 John 4 is about truth. It tells us actually what it means to live in truth. Look, if we look at verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. See, the truth that Jesus became flesh isn't just a theological or a doctrinal truth. But actually, the fact that Jesus became flesh reveals something very practical to us. For a start, it reveals how much God loves us. It reveals something about who God is and how we're related to him. It tells us that God loves us so much... That he became flesh. But actually it also tells us about how we should live, about what we should do. I think the awkward thing about this passage and about this talk is that it's not a wedding talk. It's not a passage about marriage. And it's very nice to stand in front of people that are committing their lives to one another to say... You need to lay down your lives entirely for one another in the way that God did when he became human and died on a cross. I feel like at a stretch I can imagine that uh, being married um, has some of that about it and I feel okay with challenging people to live like that. But this isn't a passage about marriage, right? This is not talking about husbands and wives and how they should love one another. This is talking about how we should love each other, all of us, whether you're married to them or not. So the truth changes how we live practically. It changes how we love people. And John repeats this theme throughout 1 John. We heard last week from Christian and we started discussing what would it mean to lay down our lives for people that we don't know, people that are distant from us. But actually it's worth thinking about what would it mean for us to lay down our lives daily for people that are around us. What would it mean to take this truth that God became flesh and that's how we know what love is. To then live it out. To be honest, I don't know the full answer to that question. If you're looking for the answer, don't look to me. But I think just by reflecting on that truth, we start thinking how we love. Do we love each other in a sacrificial way? Am I giving everything to love this person? And Adam is going to help us to try and unpack a little bit of that before we leave the meeting this afternoon. But actually... Before we do that, I think what's really important is that our change in attitude does come from our realisation of truth. If we just go from here and just try to be really nice to people, we haven't really grasped what John is talking about here. That's why we need both parts of this passage. We could leave this room with an impossible task of loving the entire world and this burden with missing the truth that is here. And so, before we think practically... We're going to just dwell on this truth. And there's a really helpful way that we can do that, because Jesus told us to remember. Every time we meet together, to remember him by sharing in the practice of eating bread and drinking wine together. And can I invite you to really enter into this practice? People throughout the centuries that have proclaimed that Jesus has come in the flesh are united by this practice of taking communion, of sharing bread and wine together. And if you're like me, the tendency is to revert to school assembly mode, and we just, you know, bow our heads, and we're a bit quiet, and we shuffle along, and we get to the front, and we eat the bread, and we've not really thought about it, we take the wine, and then that's the end of it. And we don't really engage in what this is all about. So can I invite you to enter into this sharing of the bread and wine together, to take that truth into your heart, that God has come in flesh, let that truth change your perspective on who God is, how much He loves you and how much we ought to love one another. There's a, there's a really powerful bit of the Church of England literature, um, liturgy, which invites us to draw near with faith. And can I ask that that would be your prayer, your invitation this afternoon, to draw near with faith? the God who has come in flesh Christians are going to come and lead us in that now but let me just pray for us so Father God I thank you for that amazing truth that you have come in flesh that you love us so much that you would come in flesh to rescue us that you would come that we can be forgiven from our sins and that you would give us a new way of living a new way of loving one another. And I just pray that as we enter into this practice of sharing bread and wine together, that you would be speaking to us and that you would remind us of that truth. Amen.